my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. As an Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authority member for the northwest of England, I receive emails with related attached data to wade through on an almost daily basis, much of which comes from Angler and Fellow IFCA member for the South East, Leon Roskilly. Having spoken with Leon, I know that he was in part responsible for getting angling onto the political agenda at government level, and in particular, the concept of the Sea Angling 2012 Survey of Recreational Angling, to assess and compare the value to the economy of sea angling in the UK with that of the commercial sector, in the hope of redressing the balance of clout commercial fishing has over angling in terms of seemingly calling all the shots. Sea Angling 2012, and the implication or otherwise of Marine Conservation Zones, or MCZs, will form the backbone of this particular interview with Leon. But, first things first. Give us an insight into your involvement with politics more generally on behalf of angling, as a way of setting the scene for the two issues I've already mentioned. came into politics quite late in my angling career, which I started when I was seven years old. Always had a concern about the environment and seeing things going downhill certainly with sea fishing i got involved with some campaigns uh, nothing angling related joined friends of the earth and felt that there wasn't actually anything happening very much with the uh, marine side of things i did get involved on the freshwater side with the national association of specialist anglers which became the specialist anglers conservation group and that basically started my interest in the politics side of things. And of course it was a, a search for information that was the main stumbling block. I knew things weren't going too well out there. Uh, the fish seemed to be getting smaller and harder to catch, having to travel further to find some decent fish in it. But uh, I wasn't quite sure about what to do with it. This came in with the age of the internet, that the internet was becoming available then. Nothing like it is nowadays with social networking sites, etc. Email was something we were using at work, but wasn't generally used by the population at the time. The social networking side of things was on what they called user groups or bulletin boards on the internet. Then gradually websites and that started and forums. More and more information became available and... Yeah, I started finding the information that I needed to discover what was happening and sharing that with other people. I believe that one of your earliest forays was the setting up of the Sea Angling Conservation Network, an offshoot of which has been the highly effective Scottish Sea Angling Conservation Network, or SACAN, which has done so much to push through legislation north of the border. With the angling organisations I was then involved with, Mainly communication was through letters, phone calls and club magazines and meetings now and again. Being involved professionally in computers, I could see the benefit of setting up a website, getting information out onto the user groups and the websites that were starting to develop and getting more and more people involved that way. And to give the whole thing some kind of organisation Having talked with some people, we came up with the idea of the Sea Anglers Conservation Network as a name for the website. And initially, we were purely there to support the existing organisations, such as the National Federation of Sea Anglers, 
Bass Angler Sport Fishing Society and National Mullet Club, etc., in getting the message out to as many people as possible using the internet. Previously, it had been very expensive to try any form of communication. One relied on advertising, which was very expensive, and also letter writing. Again, postage costs were quite high, and and here was this thing, the internet, coming on the scene that meant we could share information electronically and set up a website that people could come to. So we got the website set up, started to put information on it, various articles, etc. And we found that the Sea Anglers Conservation Network was becoming fairly influential in that organisations were beginning to approach us to respond to consultations. We then did various consultations on various matters, got invited along to meetings as the Sea Anglers Conservation Network, and it became an organisation within its own right. At its peak, we had something like 600 individual members, but some of those memberships were club memberships, themselves having hundreds of members and other organisations with large memberships as well. So we were reaching about 10,000 people directly or indirectly at the peak of the Sea Anglers Conservation Network and um, getting involved in a lot of meetings and the politics of things. But this, as I understand it, eventually ran its course, unlike Sasakum, which seems to go on from strength to strength. Yeah, the problem that I was finding was that although we had taken a number of people on as executive members that formed a, an executive group which run SACN, that a lot of the work was falling to me to do, trying to publish the magazine, the membership lists, getting involved in consultations. We needed to either move up a gear and become a financed organisation where we could start employing people or it was becoming unsustainable. Fortunately, about that time, or coincidentally about that time, the Angling Trust was being formed, and it seemed to me that there was no real need unless people were prepared to step forward into the roles and put in a lot of work. There was this other organisation which hopefully would do the same kind of job. So, in the end, I gave 18 months notice that I would no longer be doing what I'd been doing in the past and it was up for the committee to step forward. Nobody did. So SACN itself became moribund. But up in Scotland, Ian Barrett, who had been the executive member for Scotland of the SACN, he was storming ahead. With the devolved administrations, you had different groups of people, the politics were different, and it was very difficult to coordinate across the different administration, Wales, England and Scotland, with different people involved, different organisations involved, different regulations applying. And Ian put it to me that he'd like to become independent for Scotland, and I was very happy with him to do so. He had the drive, the enthusiasm to take that forward, so I wished him well and helped him as much as I could. As you say, the Scots had a different political setup, which looks to have been better suited to making great strides, Though in fairness, Sasakin have always been very dogged in their approach. I think a lot depended on um, Steve Besterman and Ian Barrett's personal commitment to it. And Ian went for the funding as well, which I think is where most Anglin organisations have a lot of difficulty. They want to deal with the issues. People want to talk about the issues, deal with the issues. But as volunteers, they don't want to spend a lot of time 
filling in forms, applying for funding, arguing the case of funding, etc. That's not what really drives them. But I think Ian saw the funding as an essential part of things to get the funding, to be able to do what he wanted to do, to buy the things that he wanted, to hire the people that they wanted. And um, there's a lesson there for lots of organisations that are trying to achieve anything, that before you can have a project, before you can take things forward, you've really got to put the funding in place up front and work to your budgets. Uh, and Ian's done that very successfully. And the great irony here is that whilst the second deals solely with Scottish issues, both Steve and Ian are English. Yes. <laughs> yeah, if you, if, you, if you look at the Australian politics, Anglian politics, and the, the number of English people involved in Australian fishing politics, this is incredible as well. Now around that time, we still had the old Sea Fisheries Committees administering regional fisheries policy and you was instrumental in lobbying for the new IFCAs and was also appointed to the group charged with setting up the project. Yeah, that's correct. A number of things were happening that came together at a particular moment in time. We had the then Prime Minister's Strategy Unit looking into the fishing industry, and one of the SACN Executive Directors, Tom Pimbra, spoke to them, and we were invited up to the Cabinet Office to talk to them about recreational sea angling within the context of the fishing industry. Myself, Tom Pimbra and Bob Cox went along and we had a very good meeting and we talked about the value of the recreational sea angling sector, relying hugely on what had happened in America and their success with the striped bass, which had been fished almost to oblivion, but then it, the stocks were grown again on the backs of a recreational-only fishery. And they spent some time looking into what we'd told them about the value, etc. And they came up with a value of, I think it was £1.3 billion, which was hugely in excess of the first value of the landed catch of the commercial sector overall. And that opened quite a lot of eyes. And at the same time, you had the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution also looking at the impact of fisheries on the marine environment. And they came up with a report called Turning the Tide. That was back in 2004. They hadn't taken into account at that time any aspect of the recreational sea fishery. But one of their recommendations was to establish marine protected areas. And they were looking then at 30 to 40% of UK managed seas becoming no-take zones. So quite a lot was happening. We'd opened the eyes to what was the value of recreational sea angling. But this had largely been ourselves claiming the value based on the American experience the government needed to get a better handle on what it was worth and commissioned Drew Associates to come up with the Drew Report, which, if memory serves me right, said that we had over 1.1 million households in England and Wales that had at least one member who go sea fishing, spending over £500 million directly and with a... Uh, overall value of some 1.1 billion pounds i think in that kind of ballpark figure which gave us a seat at the table with defra i was later to 
as a result of that, joined the Inshore Fisheries Working Group, and I was invited as a personal invite along to the DEFRA Science Advisory Group as well. And WWF, on the back of the uh, Turning the Tide report, were looking at a marine bill, because a lot of what the government was aiming to achieve on the backs of these reports that were going on, they didn't have the powers to deliver and they needed some primary legislation to be able to give them the powers to do things like set up marine reserves. At the time I had joined the Sea Fisheries Committee, my local Sea Fisheries Committee, Kenton Essex, and I was in contact with a number of anglers who were involved in Sea Fisheries Committees, and we found ourselves very isolated that it was all about commercial fishing. If anything came up that we wanted from an environmental perspective or from a development of recreational sea angling, we found it very difficult to make any headway because the purpose of the committee was to ensure that there was a commercial sea fishery. At about this time as well, there was a guy over from the States called Josh Eagles who was working on his masters i think it was and he interviewed many members of the sea fisheries committees the councillors the members and it was obvious that they saw their purpose as supporting commercial fishermen not taking a great deal of account of the environmental needs so as the marine bill developed we kept making this point that the sea fisheries committees weren't really fit for purpose. They'd served the fishing industry well over the uh, last hundred years or so, but they weren't really equipped to deal with the modern world where we had a lot more concerns about the environment and other stakeholders. So we were pushing for the sea fisheries committees to be replaced. Um, We didn't quite get that. The government still wanted to deliver its funding via local authorities, which meant involving councillors and for decisions to be taken locally rather than nationally. But they did see that they needed to change the mix with a greater emphasis on other stakeholders than the commercial fishing industry. Much of this was discussed as the Marine Bill was being talked about and developed, and the Inshore Fisheries Working Group of DEFRA, they were charged with deciding what the organisation should be called, what it should do, what powers it should have, etc. On the meetings that I was privileged to go to, I held out very strongly for the conservation side of the IFCAS to be given some prominence and included in the name. And that's one of the reasons we now have the name the Inshore Fisheries and Conservation Authority conservation there high on the agenda and involvement of all stakeholders again high there on the agenda. If my memory serves me well, IFCAs are currently about three years old. Yet even in that short time, some incredibly important stuff requiring their involvement and attention has been pushed up to central government and back through the various affiliated bodies such as DEFRA, the Marine Management Organisation or MMO, and of course also from Brussels. So can you now identify as the main areas for debate, any achievements if at all, and where the recreational side needs to be concentrating its efforts for the future? Right, yeah, (laughs) it's uh, quite a long story. 
We have to start with the common fisheries policy. We're signed up for that within the European Union. The basis of the common fisheries policy is that all European fishermen have equal access to all areas, and that includes right up to the beaches. Now, that would have been a, a huge change to what went before with lots of local communities and fishing businesses, etc., at risk from competition. And they came up with this concept of relative stability, and part of that was that there was a derogation against free access to everybody within each nation's 12-mile zone. Now, that has been the case. It's renewed every 10 years, but it has to be renewed every 10 years. It comes up for renegotiation. Within that 12 miles, we have exclusive access to the first six miles, so only British boats or those that have a British connection on either through they land all their catch in England or the cruise English, etc. Only UK licensed vessels can, can fish within the first six miles. Within 12 miles, within the six to 12 miles, you have historic rights of other nations. Some of our boats go and fish for scallops over on the French side. There's been quite a lot of fuss made by the French about that recently because we're ignoring their conservation rules. Similarly, they don't have to follow our conservation rules within the 6 to 12 mile zone. So one of the things being talked about during the Marine Bill was extending the remit of the IFCAs out to the 12 mile zone, but that would put us in contact with these current vessels and... uh, the difficulty of managing marine resources uh, where we didn't have complete control over it. So the IFCAs themselves are now responsible for fishing for sea fish within the six miles. Outside of the six miles, it's the responsibility of the Marine Management Organisation. Now, the Marine Management Organisation was another organisation which was created by the Marine Bill which basically enforces regulations. DEFRA are responsible for policy, and the Marine Management Organisation is responsible for carrying out that policy. And within the IFCAs, they appoint representatives from the recreational fishing sector, the commercial fishing sector, and some of the environmental groups and other leisure interests to the IFCAs. So... You and I both sit on the NIFCA as an MMO appointee. The next obvious question has to be, what exactly did Sea Angle in 2012 set out to achieve? And with the findings now in the public domain, what are the main points to come out of it all? Right, yeah, another complicated story. (laughs) The Inshore Fisheries Working Group, when it existed, one of their work streams was a recreational sea angling strategy for the government. And we had the findings of the Drew report, but that was a socio-economic report. It took no account as to the impact of recreational sea angling on the resources being exploited. And so they needed more information to be able to manage properly the, the sea angling sector. And so they commissioned a report from CFAS, 
and I was on the Science Advisory Group, the DEFRA Science Advisory Group, which commissioned that report. DEFRA's Sea Angling strategy kind of died the death. One of the things I've learned is that uh, a lot of work that the government does gets ignored, forgotten about, uh, or kicked into the long grass. And this was one piece of work that uh, disappeared with the change of minister and with everybody in DEFRA starting to work on the Marine Bill. The recreational sea engine strategy had been consulted upon, hadn't been signed off by the minister, uh, and was just left to gather dust. But this piece of work to look at recreational sea angling, its impacts, its social, economic work, the money had been set aside for that and CFAS were gradually working on that. Now we bring back our friends from the EU. They have under the fisheries the data collection framework, which requires countries to give statistics on, on the number of fish being taken by different parts of the fleet, etc. And for some of those species, for eels, for salmon, for cod, and now for bass, they require returns of the recreational catch. Again, DEFRA didn't quite know how to go about uh, obtaining this information, and so decided to roll it into this other piece of work, which gave added impetus to completing that piece of work, um, which another injection of funding, higher priority, became Sea Angling 2012. The IFCAs were involved in going out to talk to anglers, to find out what they were catching, what they were putting back, how much they were keeping, how much they were spending, how far they were travelling, etc. There was part of the National Household Survey as well to identify the number of people actually taking recreational sea angling, what their motivations were. So it's a fairly big, comprehensive piece of work. And it does come up with figures for England only, if anybody ever compares this with the Drew Report. The Drew Report was looking at both England and Wales together. The Sea Angling 2012 looks only at the English side of things. And the number of people participating, the value of the recreational sea angling sector, it's all fairly consistent with what was previously established by Drew and the Net Benefits Report earlier. So it does, again, open a lot of people's eyes to just how much the recreational sea angling sector is worth to the economy as a driver of the economy and also the number of jobs that are supported by that. The temptation is to compare this with the value of the commercial sea fisheries, but it's quite a difficult thing to do because you're comparing apples and pears. Seafish, which is the authority that supports the commercial fishing industry, will say that there are lots of jobs on shore which are supported by the fishing industry, the fish processing, etc. But then again, when you look at the fish processing, most of the UK catch is exported overseas and is processed overseas. And the... Uh, the UK fish processing industry is largely working on imports. So it brings fish in, cans it and re-exports it. So again, looking at our fish exports, trying to get a, a true picture of what fish were caught in British waters kind of falls apart. So it's very difficult to get a handle on that. 
The other problem that we have in trying to compare the two is, of course, sea anglers don't catch a lot of cockles. Certainly for the inshore fleet, shellfish is the majority of the catch. The recreational sea angling sector, most of the value comes off a species of little or no commercial importance, such as flounder, dab, taupe, smooth hounds, mullet. All of these have very low commercial value. In fact, I think when you look at the species for which we compete inshore, the value of the um, commercial catch is only about £50,000 compared to something like £1.5 worth of recreational sea angling industry. So the evidence then is clear that angling has a far greater economic benefit than commercial fishing, on top of which... If commercial fishing is given only the weighting it deserves, allowing fish stocks to increase in favour of angling, angling should, over time, assume even greater importance. Well, in theory at least. But in reality, should we be heartened by this result? Well, I mean, the short answer to that is yes. One of the arguments that we put forward is that sea angling is on a downer because for years the stocks have been fished down it's become harder and harder to catch good-sized fish, so the interest falls back. If we look at the American bass fishery, when they started to rebuild the recreational fishery, they found that the curve of value actually went up exponentially. And that's because if I go sea fishing, if I go into work on Monday morning and colleagues say, what you done over the weekend, Leon? I say, well, went out fishing. Do you catch much? No, it's a waste of time, really. That's the end of the conversation. If I come back and say, here, I had some beautiful cod, and here's one here that you can try, why don't you come out with me sometime? It changes the game. More and more people become excited about going sea angling. And for those of us who go, if I'm not catching very much, I can't really justify spending a lot of money on a new rod and reel for the coming season. I'll make do with the old one, because if you're catching just three or four cod during the season, it's not worth it. If you're catching three or four cod every time you go, then it becomes feasible to spend a lot more money on the equipment and to travel further and to do more holidays, etc. So if you restore the fish stocks, both in the number of fish available to the anglers and also the quality of those fish in size and species which anglers are most interested in, not only do more people go fishing, those people who do go fishing go fishing more often, and they're spending a lot more on tackle. So that $1.3 we see as the starting point, and that should easily be doubled and doubled again if we were able to get the fisheries management policies in place that would restore the recreational sea fishery to something like it can be. In summary then, based on what you've said, what is the future for British sea angling? We're on one of those cusps at the moment. We've just had a review of the common fisheries policy, which hopefully will gradually rebuild those stocks, not for the purpose of sea angling, but for the purpose of the commercial fishery, slowly rebuild the stocks. We've also had a lot of the... um, smaller boats that fish inshore leave in the industry. So I think that the fishing, just through the weight of what's happening, will start to improve. 
what we have to do is to change the culture and the mindsets of those involved in fisheries management to recognise the value of the recreational sea fishery and the huge amount that can be achieved to build a world-class recreational sea fishery around our coasts. We've now got the mechanism, we've got the reports that have baselined the value of it. If we keep on getting this data, showing trends and how those trends can be managed by managing the fisheries for recreational sea angling, then I think there's huge potential there. What it does need is for recreational sea anglers themselves to get behind and drive this whole thing of promoting the recreational fishery, getting involved in the fisheries management through their IFCAs, responding to consultations, writing to their members of parliament. It won't happen all by itself. Can we now turn our attention to Marine Conservation Zones, or MCZs? Most people will no doubt have heard of them, but few will know much, if anything, about what they are, what they're supposed to do, and whether all of this can be policed. The ideas came from, initially, I think, uh, New Zealand, where they experimented with no-take zones, where nothing is taken out, nothing is deposited in the area. It's just left to recover. And they were quite successful. They were mainly based around reefs and structures, the amount of fish available recovered and you started to get a spillover effect. And when the commercial fishermen saw the spillover effect, that they could actually catch more by leaving some areas alone, the industry itself started to ask for these uh, and manage them. And the rest of the world cottoned on to this, the conservation groups especially. And there was a big push for more and more protected areas around the seas, around the world. The UK signed up to protect areas under international agreements and also as a commitment to the European Union, which specified that we have to have a uh, coherent network of marine protected areas. Now, when I became involved in this, it was shortly before the Royal Commission report turning the tide, and the environmental groups were then looking at 30 or 40% of the UK managed waters to become marine protected areas. And they were pushing quite strongly for these to be no take zones. So no fishing allowed whatsoever. This is something that became a big bone of contention in Australia recently with their marine parks, which excluded recreational sea angling from huge areas and which the Australian government has just backed down from. But um, I was very concerned in talking to some of the NGOs that the message I was getting was that if commercial fishing wasn't to be allowed to take part in those areas, then it would be unfair to allow access for recreational sea anglers. Our argument was, well, it's not recreational sea angling which has done the damage. Why should we suffer because it's been overfished commercially? If you have, say, off-road vehicles messing up the tracks in the countryside, you close it to the off-road vehicles doing the damage. You don't stop the walkers going up there that have enjoyed it for centuries without any problem. And quite heated debates we, we had along those lines. The thing that we held out for was that if you're going to protect an area, you must be clear of what it is in that area that needs protecting there must be objectives for that area 
and that only activities which harm those or work against you failing to achieve those objectives should be restricted and then only necessary restrictions. We also said that unlike most protected areas, we have to take account of socio-economics. This was set in the ground so that the damaging trawler that comes in and scrapes everything up we could keep off, but the valuable recreational sea angling fishery that didn't do any significant damage in those areas should be allowed to continue. So we move from a point of talking about 30 or 40% to setting up a project to identify areas with specific features that needed to be protected. I was involved with the Balanced Seas, which was the project area, identifying those areas within the southeast, working with other stakeholders. Unfortunately, rather than bringing people on board with the conservation message, I think a lot of those projects had people afraid because of the basis we started from, the 30-40% no-take areas. It set alarm bells ringing amongst commercial fishing, yachtsmen, anybody that accesses the seas, that they were going to be shut out. And so people were there mainly to defend their sector rather than to push for necessary conservation measures. Uh, I think that's something that will be taken on board for the way we do things in future. We do need to get people in on board. Now, again, we started from a very low base of knowledge of actually what's in the sea around our coasts. Uh, very little work had actually been done previously to identify what was there. So the project teams were asked to identify areas based on the best available information, which was pretty patchy in some cases. We might know that there's some feature there, we weren't quite sure of the size of it and uh, what life forms it contained, but was asked to identify the areas, as I say, based on the best available evidence, which we did. We came up with 127 areas recommended. Again, vested interest got to work on this and said, you are risking damaging livelihoods and communities by taking this approach. We're not even sure that these things are there to be protected. The science isn't good enough to go forward on these, and the minister lacked the courage to go forward except where the science made a really good case. So the goalposts were changed towards the end of the process, and that's how we ended up with just 31 of the 127 being put forward. They have said that they're going to look at a couple of more tranches by 2015. They're doing a lot of work to get the evidence now, but... Uh, yeah, it was very unsatisfactory, the lack of ambition of this government to protect the environment. One question I feel I have to ask here on behalf of sea anglers is what, if any effect, will these have on what we can or can't do? The original proposals contained what they called reference areas. Within the Marine Bill, there's no mention of reference areas. This is something that came up afterwards and so the legality of these is open for challenge which is why I believe they haven't actually gone ahead with them. 
reference areas were small areas which were to be left totally alone so that they could see what happens to that kind of habitat when no activity whatsoever takes place in it. And if reference areas went ahead, then in those areas, it's likely that there would be no recreational sea angling. The other areas, I don't think we have a lot to worry about because the features have been identified and there's very little interaction between recreational sea angling and those features, certainly damaging interaction. The only exceptions really are problems with bait digging where there's, say, mixed sediment communities which need to be recovered rather than maintained. That's an important distinction. If a feature is given the status of maintain, it means that the activities that are happening there aren't, aren't damaging it. So it's only new activities that we need to look at uh, preventing or restricting in any way. But where it's given a designation of recover, then existing activities are damaging it and so have to be restricted in some way. And that could have an implication for bait digging in a few areas. Seagrass is another feature which can be easily damaged by trampling across. So again, bait digging, if you're walking across seagrass beds within the marine conservation zone, that's likely to be restricted. In fact, we've had cases of that with uh, European marine sites where there's bylaws being introduced to stop bait digging in those sites. The other problem for some habitats is anchoring. Not so much the anchoring as the boat swinging around at anchor with a big chain sweeping the seabed. And again, it's it's mainly on seagrass beds that this is a problem, because that swinging anchor can uh, smash the seagrass. And it's a problem both for anglers who want to anchor up to fish and for yachtsmen who want to anchor for shelter, etc., but I think there's very few instances where there is a problem. In most instances, certainly of the first tranche of marine conservation zones, there's not a lot to worry most anglers. One of the misconceptions that exists out there is that this is all about making the fisheries better. It isn't. Marine conservation zones are there to protect habitat and various forms of marine life uh, I think only one instance of black bream on the Kingmere down on the south coast. Apart from that, it's uh, mainly worms and mollusks and stalk jellyfish and things that are being protected. An obvious observation here is that if anglers were to be prevented from having access, who would police them? Because I can't see commercial fishermen wanting to take on any part of that particular role. Well, exactly, yeah. Within six miles, it will be down to the IFCAs to manage these areas. Now, again, the appetite isn't there for legislation. Hopefully, we can come to agreements so there'll be codes of conduct and as long as people stick to those. In my own area, in the Medway estuary, we have some lagoon worms along a small area and the commercial fishermen have said, fine, we won't trawl there. And that's good, as long as they stick to that. There's no need to introduce a bylaw. The hope is that most of the activities that could be a problem, we can come to some friendly arrangement. Yeah, you can dig your worms there, but not over there type of things. And most people would be happy with those. So finally, should anglers now be happy to embrace MCZs? 
I think you've always got to have some uh, caution, but I don't see a lot of real problems for anglers coming out of it. You need to keep an eye on it, and that means people going along to meetings, finding out what's happening, expressing their concerns early on, and that you need some kind of organisation rather than just individuals taking it on. I know the Anglin Trust is aiming to create regional structures based around the IFCAs so that they can interact with the IFCAs and act as a conduit for allowing anglers to get involved, keeping an eye on what's happening and making representations when necessary. My own IFCA, we've developed a sea angling strategy and we've had meetings with charter skippers, anglers and uh, tackle shops, etc., bait diggers. We've had the first one. We've bought out the draft strategy. We aim to have these once or twice a year, these meetings, at least. So we're trying to involve anglers at an early stage, try and encourage them to get involved with what's happening within the IFCA so that we can all work together. Again, enforcement, as you mentioned earlier, is most IFCAs have got a huge area to police, to enforce. Most IFCAs would prefer not to do prosecutions. Prosecutions are a last resort. It's a failure, a breakdown of communication. It's much better if people are aware of, of where things are, what they're allowed to do in places. And when people aren't, perhaps through ignorance, people are going to dig where they can't, not supposed to dig. The IFCAs are going to rely on people like anglers to tell them that somebody's setting nets here or digging there or yeah, trawling there and then they can go out and take a look themselves. So, yeah, again, anglers have a very important part to play in making the marine conservation zones work. And although they're not there for the purpose of enhancing the fisheries, of course, fish do depend on habitat. Fish, as fry, need places of shelter. They need foraging areas where there's rich marine life that they can go there foraging amongst they need these areas to have a sustainable fish population. So, although they're not primarily there for the protection or enhancement of fisheries, it will improve the fisheries. Um, anglers need to buy in to that, that giving protection to the habitat is likely to improve their fishing in years to come. Explain to us in the way that you've gone through it all here should see a lot more anglers wanting to buy into MCZs. Well, in principle at least. Because in practice... Anglers, and sea anglers in particular, are quite an apathetic group when it comes to standing up and being counted, so it's all credit to you for shouldering some of that responsibility. My thanks then to Leon Roskilly for spelling it all out to us here. 